Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, I'm J.R. Lowry, and this is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io online and join today. Today, my guest is Jeff Elton. Jeff is the CEO of Concert AI, whose mission is to accelerate insights and improve outcomes for patients through leading real-world data, AI technologies, and scientific research. Prior to leading Concert AI, Jeff was the North American Life Sciences lead at Accenture, where he also led their predictive health intelligence activities. Earlier in his career, Jeff co-founded and led another startup, Q Group, and he also spent time at Integral, McKinsey, and Novartis. Jeff is on the board of the Massachusetts Biotechnology Council, and he also taught for a number of years at Boston University. He and his family live in the Boston area. Jeff, welcome. Great to have you on the show today. I appreciate your time. Thanks, JR. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's good to see you again. It's been a while since we've talked live, so I'm looking forward to catching up on what you've been doing since McKinsey days. So let's start and talk about your current company, Concert AI. Can you give our audience an overview on that? Yeah, sure. So Concert AI, we're about a little bit about five, five and a quarter year old company. And we're in a domain that sometimes gets called real world evidence, real world data, but it's become much more of an advanced AI research company. We have the largest collection of research grade oncology and hematology data of anybody in the world. And as part of that, we have data that would be called multimodal. So it means we have a full exome, transcriptome, digital pathology, medical claims, electronic medical record derived data, social determinants of health data. And so what differentiates us is people used to say, here's data and it's hard to get data. So I'll see how many insights I can get out of the data relative to my question, but there's always limitations. Right. What we've kind of decided is the question of interest usually requires highly specialized data. We try to actually make sure that we have the ability to kind of syndicate and integrate all the data types that may be required for that question. And by actually having data that is kind of multimodal, it also has you eliminate confounders. And one of the problems in healthcare and life sciences you get so far and then you find confounders limit your interpretation, therefore limit the actions. And that's one thing we're trying to kind of get around so that actually a lot of our insights are a lot more actionable. As our name might indicate, we start with data and we are very much into advanced AI approaches and kind of how that can actually help glean additional insights. And we don't necessarily stay with AI at every step of our workflow, but we are actually have it in just about every single part of our operations. We can spend a little bit more time on that later. But the reason why that's kind of important is sometimes if you don't have tools allow you to get kind of what would be considered new and insights not bound by the literature, not bound by previously conventional ways of kind of doing your analytics, you may in fact be missing many things and you may actually 
kind of be delaying the time that you actually get to something meaningful. And since the work we do is in cancer and oncology, we're constantly thinking about accelerating the insight that's actionable or the biomedical innovation to the patients at all particular points in time. So the way I think about it is we're just a very advanced research company using a lot of digital and AI solutions to do it, founded on deep, deep, rich, broad data. You've been in this space a long time. I mean, since before I knew you back in the early 2000s, was there a particular spark or moment that led to the creation of Concert AI? Yeah. So what's interesting is the the group I'm working with is we are a long-term collaborator with the American Society of Clinical Oncology, and we kind of do a lot of work there. And during the pandemic, we did. And that was a group that I actually knew before I was at Concert AI. We work with a lot of community-based clinical providers, and many of them were people that I worked with before I was in Concert AI. Mm. Back in other parts of my life, we're dealing with a lot of biopharma innovators, Many of them are people that I've worked with either side by side when I was at Novartis or in other cases, most of my life. So the idea and the concept of Concert AI that came together with our investors actually was a very natural act for me. And it actually kind of provided a sort of almost a point where many threads converged. Yeah. I did not anticipate its timing and a few other things. In fact, it timed in the setup here kind of came about at the same time that my kids were actually going into college and I was probably having my most the largest cash outflow I've ever had in my life and required <laughs> me to leave probably one of my higher cash producing roles I'd ever had in my life. And so one may kind of question my sanity at the moment, but yeah. it also was such an unusual opportunity and one that I could sit down with my family and say, okay, here's the situation. You guys are going to be in on this too. So are yeah. we all in or, or not on, on this? And kind of obviously they were all in. So Sounds like you've got outside investors. Are your big investors individuals? Is it venture capital money? Is it corporate money? I want to come back to your point about corporate. We have no corporate money, but I want to come back a little bit about why we don't have corporate money. We have a set of institutional investors. So our kind of our foundation investor is a group called Symphony AI. A gentleman named Ramesh Wadwani, who originally had Symphony Technology Group, has built probably about 30 companies through the years located in the Bay Area. We also have Six Straight Partners, which is a TPG kind of spin-up company, probably given your kind of role in financial services, you probably know them. Six Straight has been a very good partner and they invest a lot of things in oncology, healthcare related activities. Both of those groups are what I would call more private equity based. And then we have Maverick Ventures out of the Bay Area. They do a lot of work in healthcare and life sciences, very early stage. And so they're kind of really much more on the entrepreneurial startup entity. And then we have Alliance Bernstein is kind of also there. And then Declaration Partners out of New York City. And Declaration is David Rubenstein, who had been the vice chair of Carlisle Group, one of his new vehicles. So all private equity, all independent, all have sort of caveats that they don't. They invest in things in adjacencies, but not directly counter to what we do. So we're in kind of exclusive positions in their relative portfolio. And one of the reasons why we've had offers and we've talked about kind of corporate money being pharma, biopharma. So you could look at one of our peer slash competitor firms would be something called Flatiron Oncology in New York City, which ended up having investment dollars from Roche and was ultimately acquired by Roche. And because we deal with so many healthcare providers mm-hmm. and because we also deal across multiple biopharma innovators, we thought that our own neutrality and kind of which anything that contribute to trust and today, I have no conflicts to disclose. I have no exclusivity agreements. I have no entanglements. I have literally no conflicts. And we neither wanted the reality nor the optics of having that kind of given the nature of the work we do in healthcare. There's yeah. a view, whether it's 
real trust or kind of imbued trust, it doesn't matter at the end of the day. Oftentimes the perception is the reality you operate in there. So Yeah. All right. I get that. So what's the state of the business today? You said you've been at it for like five and a half years. Yeah. Where are you in terms of number of people, revenues, things like that? So we're a private company. So certain things I'll kind of give you all enough. <laughs> two references and you guys, the experts in your audience and listeners can kind of back in and run their own kind of reverse multiples if they want to. So the company, we finished a C round in February of 2022 that established 1.9 billion valuation at that particular point in time. That may be one of the last rounds we need to do okay. uh, in this five-year period of time. When we, By the time we close this year, we are expecting to be EBITDA positive and cash flow positive, which in mm-hmm. our opinion, actually very few. In fact, I'm not sure any of the companies in our space have actually been able to accomplish that. And I think we've made some decisions. And I think part of it, the macroeconomic environment certainly we've paid attention to because I think buying patterns and sensitivity to cost and structure is actually very high. But we were kind of taking a look at our own growth. We've never not grown. So every period we've grown independent of whether there was a pandemic or anything kind of occurred. And we're incredibly thankful to our customers for the fact that we've been able to grow period over period. But we also looked at it and said we could run a high net operating loss like had been traditional in our space where get share points, get use points, and you'll make it up with volume later on. Right. Decided, we think the world's going to pivot here a little bit. And we'd rather pivot before the world makes us pivot. And we ran our own scenarios and we looked at everything we were doing and saying, okay, this is going to take as much effort as it took to build the company, but we think we can pivot our entire operating model and change how we build things, deploy things, what geographies we work in, and actually force ourselves in 2023 to become EBITDA positive, cash flow positive. So when we get to the end of this year, we'll have this substantial majority of the raise we did in 2022, still very much in hand and actually be cash flow positive. To an earlier question, we have about 1,100 people, which sounds like a lot of people, right? So impressive. Yeah, about half of that workforce is ex US. So we do have small teams in Europe, small team in Japan, uh, pretty good sized Bangalore operation, which we've had since our founding. So we're not a recently kind of moved toward it. We don't use the term offshoring. We have product leads, we have data science lead, we have AI teams that are located in Bangalore. In fact, we find India now for technology-driven solutions is a first-tier direction and place to begin doing that work. And so for us, it actually was much easier to mature and actually take advantage while their cost structure differentials. It was also about getting access to the talent we needed for doing that. So about half of what we have in place there, probably just under that 45%, is associated with a lot of what we have to do in data. A lot of what we do with data, we do interact with a lot of personal health information, fully identifiable data. And so we have very specialized workforces, very specialized technical environments and things kind of been doing that. But we have a scale now that we can almost any program for any biopharma or any large provider system, we have the capability of taking on almost better than anybody else in the industry at this point. That's great. That's a huge run up from a start just a few years ago. It'll be 1,100 people. So Congrats. I feel it. You wouldn't know that I'm 30, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> right. no, I, yeah, I know you know it. You feel it in different ways, but I think oh, yeah. the team has a lot of passion. And the fact is, there's a mission behind the business build, just kind of given the space we work in. So, yeah. So, we won't have time to go too far down the AI rabbit hole, but apart from the obvious of using artificial intelligence to sort of infer insights about treatment protocols out of the data, what are some of the other ways that you're using? artificial intelligence in the business? 
Yeah. So if you're anybody who's listening that does work in healthcare will know that unfortunately, the majority of the data, even though we're, we quote, use the term electronic medical records, most of what's in those electronic medical records are physician notes, nurse notes, appended PDF documents. Those things are really not machine readable until you convert them into another form. And so while we can pull in things like lab values that may be in EMR, a lot of what we do is we're using natural language processing models, mm-hmm. many of which we're developing ourselves called large language models. Right. And large language models read, literally read certain terminology classes. And because we also have a clinical workforce, we actually have our large language models try to achieve an accuracy and recall comparable to humans that are actually doing their work or transcribing that work. And we do a lot of human-based transcription too. So we actually can index ourselves versus kind of human expertise. Right. And that actually allows us to get a lot more value out of those records, gain insights out of those records, and actually bring the analytic tools in them. So that NLP and just turning health data into something that machines can now interact with is a huge enterprise into itself. When we go over to the other side, a lot of the models we start off developing, we're in kind of what would be called GPT-2, GPT-3 class kind of models, large language model structure. That's very common for us. So we can actually, and some of these things do very simple things like in cancer, non-small cell lung cancer, one of the largest cancers doesn't have its own ICD code, which would be a normal coding of medical data. So to determine between small cell and non-small cell, we can create a model and it can just distinguish in the record what it is since it doesn't have a medical code, which actually doesn't make any sense to us, but it is what it is. All the way over to we can build tools to actually identify patients who are at risk of progressing more rapidly than the standard of care might indicate they would do. And that has kind of own utility for beginning to do it. We also have one of the most broadly deployed class one medical devices to do clinical AI work in radiological interpretation. So we're actually doing 510K software as a medical device models, which are AI models. And these actually have to go through a regulatory approval process and they're actually deployed and they're actually used as part of standard care. That solution is deployed in 900 hospitals in Europe, the United States, Japan, and now some other parts of the world. So it's integral to everything we're doing. Your question had something very important in it though, which is, AI has to be trusted and AI and trust, you know, you think about trust in a methodology, trust comes from kind of a combination of how did you train it? Was the data set that you trained representative and kind of appropriate to how you want to use it? Were you transparent? Was the model black box? Do you know what the model did or not do? And you don't want it to be black box. So we have to publish a lot of things, which you think would be counter to our intellectual property interests, but you get no utility if it has no use. And so- right or that openness kind of needs to be there. You actually have to make sure the whole basis of training, et cetera, kind of remains intact all the way over to, and I'm sure everybody's reading the headlines about Chad GPT and everything else and generative AI. The difference in generative AI is now you don't have these incredible experts and domain experts who are doing the training and the oversight and supervision of this. You now have self-learning, self-training a model that actually do weird, really sometimes unusual things. Like if they don't see data, they'll sometimes impute data. And if you read this literature, hear this term hallucination, like whoever heard thought we'd actually start working on model-based hallucinations. So we're spending a lot of time and we're super excited about the latest generation, but how you use the latest generation in the right way, in the right use case to assure its outcome and that you're not actually getting unintended negative outcomes. 
that's something we're spending quite a bit of time on. And just to be clear, much of that is not in production. It's in our labs. Yeah. So as you say, lots and lots of discussion in the press and hallway conversations, cocktail party conversations. AI is very much front and center right now. It has so much potential. From your vantage point, how do we avoid the downsides? I think part of what you need to do in AI is one, the class of problem you're working on needs to be a worthy problem such that you're going to spend the time understanding whether or not the AI is adding value to it. So let me give you an example. Right now in the United States, and I know you're in the UK and some of this may be a kind of across geography, right now in the United States, nurse resources are very low and very very hard to recruit research personnel to do biomedical research and get patients into clinical trials that could be beneficial for them. Oftentimes they came from being trained as nurses are exceptionally hard to find right now. Many of these people left the workforce during the pandemic, either out of exhaustion or kind of other things. Right. AI models can actually read records like humans, find patients for clinical trial eligibility and augment what today is super lean resourcing. Mm. That's great use because right now we may never get back to required staffing levels and I may need decision augmentation. The number of radiologists to do radiological reads going down, the number of graduating radiologists is going down. So you have fields that are changing substantially, but they're actually open. And I'm using the word augmentation to say, I'm not replacing, I'm actually allowing individuals with expertise to be a lot more productive by augmenting what they see and how they can actually work with tools that are kind of appropriate around that. When you kind of come over, I think it's going to be a long time before, quote, a tool is making a decision in replacement of the human. And that these are all things that have to be earned. I'm not saying that models can't be appropriate at making a deterministic diagnosis, but you have to go through a very deliberate process and almost think about the development of AI models. And the same way you think about the development of a drug where we run clinical trials and we get visibility. And the same day, and you may recall this even from the old days of drug development, there used to be something called black box drugs where it had the effect we wanted, but we had no idea how it worked. Those don't prove anymore because it turns out they did other things in biology that we didn't want. So those say there's a lot of these principles that need to become how we operate. But our strong belief is it needs to be transparent. We need to know what people are doing. We need to know how they're working on it. Otherwise, this is going to be like what happened with CRISPR, which is the gene editing. It all went underground. And weird, nefarious stuff happened in the background. And the nefarious people will not stop just because we're putting brakes on other things in what would be considered the lit up transparent world. Yeah. You can't really stop the use of these tools, but certainly it will be an interesting policy debate that we watch play out over the next few years about how to put guardrails around their use. Absolutely. Absolutely. should be. And even about personal privacy and the data I have connectivity of my data and how it gets consumed and used. All sorts of questions that we've not had to debate before will actually kind of come up on this. Yeah. All right. Well, let's shift gears. Talk a little bit about your role in leading the company. So you said 1,100 people. How would you describe your leadership style and how does it connect to the kind of culture that you're trying to create and the great place to work that it's highlighted in your background there? So, yeah, actually it is right there. I forgot. It's actually, oh, yeah, we just got that last year, both in India and the United States in the same time. So, so if you think about it, we're in a culture where we have data scientists, clinicians, cancer epidemiologists, engineers, you know, very quantitatively, very rigorously data-based people. And I think we're also in an area where some of what you do doesn't work, but you actually do it first. 
And you're also in an area where everything has to be trusted. You can't take shortcuts or if you kind of know that there's an expected outcome, you can't manipulate things to get to the outcome or you may cause harm. So if I put those qualities of what needs to be there, and JR, you'll remember this even back from when we were both McKinsey colleagues, there was this obligation to dissent, right? This sort of of idea. And then we had a different notion that challenge can sometimes be a negative word or challenge can become a mode of engagement and discourse to get to a superior outcome. And challenge can kind of, if you level hierarchy and how you allow challenge where junior can challenge senior, if it's in the spirit of what you're trying to do, that notion of obligation to dissent, that notion of challenge, and I'll add that when I was at Novartis, we developed a contact, sort of a, an idea here, particularly for our drug discovery, that if a program didn't work, we would say that science wasn't ready to be solved yet. That problem had not revealed enough about itself yeah. to actually be solved. It wasn't a fault of the individual. We wanted the individual to do it. We wanted them to do the failure experiment first. Like if it's going to fail, why it's going to fail, test that first. So if you take those themes... There's a culture behind it that actually kind of indicates around collaboration, intellectual rigor, intellectual kind of sparring in a way to get to the best possible outcome, allowing the iteration. Failure is not bad. Failure may have been a necessary preceding step. Things that you tried to do before will come back again. We're actually delivering things to the marketplace now that we had as ideas back in 2018 or 19, but we can do it now. And so- that's one part of it, which is establishing that culture, establishing that value systems about how we operate and bring together. We've spent also a lot of time, if you think about diversity inclusion criteria, we think of diversity inclusion criteria as, as being real. I mean, at every possible level, though, those terms get used. But we also believe it, believe it in the sentiment of the perspectives and where the mm-hmm. perspectives come from in the debate, because it actually makes people kind of sensitive to things that they otherwise kind of might not be. And it's one of the reasons why we even we allow our own people to do research in areas like health disparities and things of that nature that don't normally get funded even out of our normal commercial lives and things of that nature. The other part of it is my role oftentimes is we operate in three time frames. So we operate in trying to meet the quarter, meet the year, which is kind of time frame number one. I'm spending a lot of time thinking about what am I going to be doing by mid-year 24 and the latter part of 24. Right. And then I Take my three-year horizon line. Am I doing things now that are going to make me successful in the latter part of 24? But also, is that kind of bridge from 23 to 24 going to get us to where we need to be in 26? And I kind of that three-year. So those three, and this will be familiar too, too, those three horizons and ways of thinking and solving and operating. And that's only going to come from the executive leadership team and people because day in, day out, most people don't get the, either don't have the luxury or don't have the mandate or even the ability sometimes to go into it and kind of bring that together. I think the other part of it is when we think about recruiting people and doing things, I kind of believe in a little bit of a symmetric contract with people. So I go into it with the spirit of they're selecting me, right? I'm selecting them. And my ability to select them has no more power than their ability to select me. And part of my questions in my interview with them is to help them understand a lot about me to aid them to select me more accurately. And I'm hoping they also do the same thing to help me do it. So there's a little bit of, and that same kind of, if you will, that's the pre-contract period. That's right. 
team approach almost needs to be how people actualize their career and opportunities in a kind of a post period. So if you kind of come back to that, it's kind of leading those horizon, leading that strategy. I'd probably be attributed with leading some of the areas where we innovate. And this is a field I've been in for a long time. I got a huge amount of energy. I'm excited about it. I love waking up every day and doing what I do. And I start super early. I don't know if you remember myself yep. and some colleagues. I was a 5 a.m., sometimes 4.45 a.m. starting working day guy. It's because that's when the world was quiet and I could kind of dive in and get stuff. So that's a little bit of how I kind of approach it. Your points from a minute ago about just the importance of challenge and failure and iteration and all of that. I mean, you talked a little bit about interviewing, but are there particular approaches that you use to surface whether somebody's going to be a good fit for your company? Yeah, I think it's so interesting to say that because we have this as a debate all the time, right? And we find that some things we do work really well and don't work really well. And one of the principles probably won't surprise you. Maybe you wonder why does this take Jeff so long to be able to articulate this concept. But one of the things we find is primary attribute number one is level of personal curiosity and activation energy they put behind their own personal curiosity. Mm -hmm. Our most successful people are inherently very curious. They see something, they observe something, they see a relationship with something, and they want to know more about it, and they probe more about it. And actually, it's really interesting. We found of all the things we kind of said to predictability to be successful in our environment, you yeah. know, actually, it was that motivated curiosity, not just, hmm, I wonder why that's based, but then taking a step to probe a little bit in terms of kind of where it's there, and it kind of allows them to change how we do what we do, the project. And we can get that out of interviews. You start to understand like how people did what they did, what they do in the role. How did they actually, if they were a product leader, how did they actually even think about the definition of the product? How do they even know if there was a market behind that product? How do they understand what competition, how do they understand evolving use cases or potential points of disruption and discontinuities about how markets were going to be kind of working or deploying that. But a lot of that kind of comes down to that curiosity. Other parts obviously become value systems. I mean, think about the level of PHI and other things. This idea that they're motivated by doing something for the If I have somebody that's super motivated by doing something for the patient, they will never have a malfeasant action ever in the environment. They mm. feel they're so responsible that the quality of their work would ever adversely impact a patient. They would take that. They would take that. In fact, a lot of our people have done work in patient care and direct patient yeah. care. And so this idea that just that depth of what makes them, what really makes them wake up, why would they want to join us? My chief revenue officer, as an example, he came to me and goes, I shouldn't even be telling you this, Jeff, because I'm going to totally lose all of my negotiation standing with you. He said, I'm a cancer biologist by training. He actually went to school in London at the Crick Institute, et cetera, for kind of cancer biologist by background. And of all the companies in the world that I could work for, in the world I could work for, I came to the conclusion it's contrary to AI. Like what we do here, like I'm in a universe of one. Now that I've told you that, you hit me over a barrel. But he's not over a barrel. He's got a great contract and structure for doing. But I use it as just an illustration that it's that matchup between yeah. people. Like his motivations are deep in what he's guided his career to for a long time. So. Yeah, I've been thinking about this topic a lot. I mean, we've rolled out a new value system in the company that I work for. And to some extent, that will drive what we're looking for in employees. But there are things undoubtedly that aren't captured by our value system that are important ultimately to success. And I'm at some point going to sit down and maybe take one of those early morning quiet hour periods and try and <laughs> write down at least a sort yeah. of 
thought starter list of the attributes that I feel like we're hiring for or need to be hiring for. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. for sure. What are the hardest decisions that you find that you have to make as a leader? I mean, some of them are what I call a little bit more on the trivial scale, but I'll put them out there anyway. I'm excited about what I do, but I have to make trade-offs. And we have the fortune, I guess, of having not more things we think are commercially viable than we probably kind of have the resources or just the management bandwidth to take on. And you want to make sure you're right. You want to make sure you've made that we're looking for some things we do to be synergistic. So that's part of it. People issues are for me. I'm a very people-oriented human being, and I value who I work with. And when you're in a company that's changed as much as we have and grown as much as we have, and you're, you're now in the kind of hundreds of million category in terms of what you're doing here, but when you kind of get into that particular range, we're probably kind of feel like we're on our third generation of being a company, even though we've only been around for slightly over a five-year period of time. and. Yeah. Sometimes the people that were appropriate for Gen 1 are not the right people for Gen 2. And they're great people. And they did a great job of moving us from Gen 1 to Gen 2. But they are not the right people. And part of my responsibility to do this is actually assure that the team and the leadership and what's there is appropriate for where we're going, not where we've been. And I actually have to admit, my background is I have been in sort of earlier stage entities and active angel investor. But Sometimes when you really get through something that's really going through a very high growth stage, you don't really realize how much you do have to change in, change out, and be willing to mm -hmm. kind of move those operating models. And those are very tough decisions with good people that actually it's just not the right place for them and it's not right for us to actually yeah. get that. That definitely is probably in my personally kind of hardest category to kind of get done. Experiences that are hard. I'm a very customer-centric individual. When I said earlier that I give my customers incredible amounts of gratitude, my company couldn't be here and I personally couldn't be doing my role and what I did unless I had trust and customers took a very long-term view on working with us and mm. go through and tolerate periods of what I'll call subpar performance because we're still building and getting stuff, but they tolerate it. They gave us the feedback. It wasn't always nice, but they didn't say I'm terminating your contract. They're saying, Let's get this right together. Yeah. They're willing to work through, and this is the same thing in personal relationships, right? I mean, spousal relationships and things of that nature, working through the things that are not working actually builds strength on the other end of it. And it actually builds capability in your own organization to know that those are survivable moments that actually kind of, you don't like it. You know why you don't like it. You probably are going to avoid more of them, but also just knowing what it's like to cure and preserve and grow and strengthen out of those relationships, that can actually become institutionalized kind of as well. This is your second CEO stint. So your first stint was back with Q Group. Tell us a little bit about Q Group and do a bit of the compare and contrast on the two yeah. CEO roles. Big difference. So there are some similarities. I'll kind of tick off a couple of similarities first. So Q Group was also oncology focused. Q Group also had to do with kind of bringing early days of molecular diagnostic information informing treatment selection. If you were to kind of go in the search tool of your preference and look at patents and things there, so, you know, we did work on kind of integrating molecular data with clinical data to start identifying the treatment approach most likely to lead to a beneficial outcome for the patient. 
We were also trying to build out a clinical network, which is something that we have today. If I touch the meta headers, it's going to sound like, wow, that sounds a lot like what you were doing at Concert AI. However, this was probably back in the kind of 2009-ish period, or I have to go back about quite a while ago, right? So as we're kind of going into that, and we were less well capitalized. We had capital. We were less well capitalized. So this time we had a much stronger foundation capital. By the way, that was one of the criteria I had when my family sat down and we said, we're going to do this. So this is materially different position. We had a couple underlying acquisitions, which had been done coincidentally. One of them was one I was trying to do back at the time at Q. So if there was a little bit of the, hey, I've been here before, but now the deal's done. And right. so I'm parting assets on kind of doing it. I think the scope of the team and the investor group that I'm with, and particularly Symphony AI and the experience they have of actually building 30 technology-centric companies, incredible. I kind of think of myself as, I've done a lot professionally and I have a lot of people that will work, but I have to tell you, when I work at 30 companies that have had their ups and downs and near-death moments, and to get the counsel out of my current board group and doing These guys are outstanding. And I soak up the guidance in addition to them being able to apply the stuff I'm here. So this notion of actually having the right team, the right capital, and the right board and the right partners, and actually even the right founding assets. So we got to product and revenues really fast. Yeah, That was something very important to me to being a revenue company incredibly fast, actually. So those things were all very different. And I definitely internalize my learnings a lot. Yeah. Not an individual, like I will own everything and I will own the insights and I'll own what I don't want to do. And I'll take all the feedback from my current board. And we're, you know, we're very oriented to kind of making sure we get to where we need to go. Go back to the beginning of your career. So you, you got the trifecta of degrees from the University of Chicago. Yeah, You had three undergraduate majors and then you got an MBA and a <laughs> PhD as well. So I think you covered the yeah, ground well in South Chicago. Yeah. Yeah, so sorry. back then, what did you foresee that you would be doing professionally? All right. So this is when it becomes sort of like, I don't know, we'll say, is it on the margin of embarrassment or lack of self-awareness? So my mother, who has passed, was a biomedical researcher and had discovered drugs at Merck & Co. My okay. father was biomedical research dermatologist physician, also did a lot of work in kind of a dual boarded in pathology and dermatology and did a lot of work in topical skin cancers, melanomas, et cetera. So sitting around the dinner table wouldn't be unusual to kind of look at really uh, rather icky photos of different things on skin and having an interesting conversation and things about that. And so I had to kind of determine, I'm going to go my own path. Like I can't go into healthcare and life sciences. That's what they're doing. I need to figure out, go do my own thing. Right. So in a lot of the early stuff I did, in fact, probably even early consulting, I was doing technology work. I had the pleasure of doing some work at Dell computer when there were 300 employees there, saw the last days of Zenith data systems before they were acquired by Group Bull and kind of the whole early days of tech. And so I kind of did that for a while. And then my PhD is actually in economics. And I had to make a very, in fact, the expectation back when I got a PhD, it's a little bit different today, but the expectation was I was going to stay in academia. Mm -hmm. And my committee and not the person who was my thesis advisor, and I had two, Harry Davis, who was the deputy kind of head of the business school, and a gentleman named Edward Lazier, who's out at the Hoover Institute at Stanford now. They were very good about working with me. But the rest of the people at the institution said, hey, if you're not going to go teach, why the hell are you in this program? Like, right. 
why would you get a PhD? And why should we put the effort into you if you're not coming back into our world and our orbit? And the reason why I was there is I enjoyed the depth of thinking through theoretical constructs and taking a large, heady research project and kind of going through. And it allowed my mind to continue to mature, allowed me to mature intellectually. I really, I love the interaction I had with the faculty there and kind of what I was doing. So for me, I felt like I was maturing and finishing what I wanted to be intellectually and how I wanted to think and how I wanted to problem solve in my own quantitative skills and background. And I did a lot of work in quantitative finance theory at the time and did some stuff with Myron Scholes, which is also one of the things that got me involved in the time. But when I finished up graduate school and I did that and I graduated, I also kind of said, one, got to get out of Chicago, because to your point, I've been there a long time in the South Mm -hmm. Side. There's got to be a little bit more of the world. So I ended up in Boston. I wasn't supposed to stay in Boston, but I'm still in Boston. Probably its own little side story. But I also decided I wanted to go. In fact, one of the reasons why management consulting was so appealing to me, which was there's a lot of fields, a lot of disciplines I could get myself intellectually interested in. And I did. And I got captivated by all of them. And then I got back on pharma and healthcare again Mm. while I was doing consulting. And then I did another. Then I did another. Then I got another. And then all of a sudden I said, the idea that people train themselves like crazy and went into a field where the reason why they're there is to better humans and take an ill person and make them well, take Mm. a situation and actually make it less horrific and actually ultimately restore them. And the sentiment and the values and the behaviors of people doing biomedical research and everything else, it appealed to me. And now I understood like how I grew up and I understood what had been inculcated into me in my own personal values growing up, which I don't think I had that level of awareness until I started actually doing work in that area. And I go, okay, well, full circle. Now I'm comfortable. And it's my decision to come back into healthcare and life sciences as opposed to my dad telling me you should go to med school. And so at that point, I kind of then said, no, I'm actually, everything I would do is going to be biomedical research and kind of healthcare related. And that's what I can continue doing at McKinsey. That's why I went into Novartis and I was in their discovery through early clinical development. That's what I did when I was at Accenture. Everything I did was for healthcare providers and doing that. And I active angel investor, everything I did was healthcare and biomedically related in kind of doing that. So when I, not a regret move and then in the least, it's actually continues to be the field that just uh, kind of pours out. I'm on the Mass Biotech Council. I'm now on right. the committee. I've done that for years, four rounds of strategy sessions and kind of things of that particular nature. So sometimes there's a path one needs to go before one kind of has the level of self-realization that then actually allows one to be directed in a super comfortable way. And I tell you, I can't have enough hours in the days to think through what I want to think through, read what I want to read and write what I want to read. So you know that when you got this, just this back pressure to kind of motivation. So Yeah. Well, your passion for it's evident, right? And not everybody gets that. And you had to sort of take a somewhat circuitous route to get there. I did. There's a little bit of, I'm not doing what mom and dad are doing and I'm going to go forge my own path, but you came back to it. There's no sin in that right? You're helping people and you've been doing it for a long time. So that's great. By the way, as an aside, Myron Scholes works for our firm. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So when I got out of my MBA and I don't even know who even remember this, but this was way back in the day. I actually, I had a class with him and I was doing something, I think it was back with the Black Scholes option for pricing models and things of that. And we had a super highly quantitative, very off on the edge of some of what he had been working on. 
And I did this work and I found it like it actually, I did something that I wasn't even clear. I had the, the kind of quantitative capacity to do. And it was like really exciting work actually with him. And he gave me this A plus and I'm sitting going like, holy crap. And A plus from Myron Scholes. Yeah. I felt like, like frame that, put that on my wall. Yeah. And we had a conversation about it and I ended up kind of then transitioning into the PhD program and I was always vacillating between the finance and financial theory to, to the economics world. Economics ultimately resonated with me just because I had more direct applications to the work. And I'm a I'm a fairly hands-on person at the end of the day and really want to start putting some things much more rapidly into models that can be applied. And yeah. economics, at least for me then, a little bit closer to being able to do that. And economics is still super natural act for me. I'm still passionate about that as well. So. Yeah. Well, congrats on getting an A plus from a Nobel laureate. <laughs> I probably have it somewhere in my files. Uh, well, I would totally frame that. <laughs> so you've done a couple of startups. You yeah. work for a big company, Novartis. You've been in the several different consulting firms. You rebounded to another consulting firm after your time at Novartis. Do you look back on any of this and say like, oh, that, wow, I can't believe I did that. That was not a great fit for me. Or is it all sort of thrown into the stew and you've gotten something out of each one of those experiences and you look back on them all as right for you at the time. I don't look at any experiences being negative in the least. And even things that are challenging on multiple levels. And you know how firms work, JR, and there's neutrality and politics that all intertwine like it's its own little healthy and unhealthy DNA sometimes of the organization. Mm -hmm. So at McKinsey, we had this incredible vantage point of working with executive teams and I don't think my maturation about how an XCOM looks at things could have occurred mm -hmm. rapidly if I hadn't been at that firm at the time. And the set of colleagues I had were like spectacular. I mean, just the intellectual depth. In fact, some of the partners that we had then continue to be close personal friends. I mean, one that you and I had in the Boston office lives a half mile from me and his yeah. wife we're still friends. We see each other regularly. So it was a social and work and I learned a lot. And I left to join Novartis, which was a white paper that I had worked on with a set of other McKinsey colleagues that established mm -hmm. what I thought at the time is one of the leading biomedical institutions and concepts ever that had an extraordinary amount of funding attached to it. And we did the white paper, we advanced it, we worked on the initial setup and the chairman of the company, their head of clinical development, their head of research, all three asked me if I would leave McKinsey and come join and almost eat my own cooking, finish the right. play, this entity up. And I'm sitting here and going like, where am I going to have the opportunity to spend, I think, the billion plus resource yeah. to literally fundamentally transform and change how biomedical is going to be doing at that scale? I mean, enormous yeah. scale. So for me, it was kind of like, okay, I've not been in industry. This is kind of weird. I'm going to come in in an SVP role. Most people grow up in that environment, incredible trust. I have to tell you, at the end of that first year, I was exhausted. I thought yeah. I was a super smart guy, very, you know, PhD or Kinsey. When I got to the end of that, my wife and I sat at the end of the first year in our fireplace and I said, I have never had a year where I learned how little I knew. Yeah. You take on that operating role. And in fact, I had people in Basel coming up to me and say, I work for you. What do you want me to do? And I'm like, seriously, that was the first line. And I knew it was a challenge line, right? Yeah. Okay. You're the smart guy. You're the guy from Boston. You have no background in this industry. What do you want me to do? And I'm sitting here and I had to kind of, the amount that I had to learn and kind of come down the learning curve, but also it actually bridged for me counsel 
actually needs to be actualized. And mm. the first thing I said at the end of that year, I would have changed my counsel at McKinsey if I actually knew what organizations could do. We were smart, but we didn't really always know all the details of what it takes a tens of thousands of people and actually get that done when you're actually responsible on the ground and you got to pull it. So I learned a lot coming out of that experience. So coming out of that, I then went entrepreneurial again, came back in. So for me, there was no regrets and Accenture was tech deep. So I was tech deep in AI. I was tech deep in advanced analytics stacks. I got to build things to do predictions of heart failure patients before they decompensated to stop the decompensation. So for me, all of these things built upon them and I can actually be integrative of those things even as I go into my next role. So no regrets. I wouldn't say they all were like hyper-planned yeah. to a degree. I think the way I've worked and operated and always kind of had an openness and kind of built my own networks kind of created some of those opportunities along the way. And if I'm super excited, I always thank people for thinking about me and I don't even try to remotely get into conversations, but no regret about anything at all. Yeah. So you're a very high energy person. What do you do to recharge your battery and keep yourself energized? So a couple of things, even each day. I do start each day very early and I still do read whatever's published in medical literature, healthcare literature, et cetera. So actually having time to actually think and not just dive into sets of Zoom and Microsoft Teams meetings and things of that nature, which are kind of process-based interactions. So I do have to start off that way. I do actually have to make sure that every single day I'm doing some form of workout Generally speaking, if you look at what I do in my free time, I'm kayaking, I'm biking, I'm hiking. So all nature, mm-hmm. all of all, no technology for the most part. Yeah. My body's moving it or I'm moving myself through it. So that to me has been increasingly more important. And those are the things that are kind of more restorative. The things I don't need are things that I've really sought in my late 20s, 30s, and probably even 40s. Like, I would love to go and be in the center of a city or go into the, I would be captivated by urban life. And so it's fine. I do it and I enjoy it. And I do it because I want to be there with the people I'm with. Yeah. But actually my restorative time is actually getting out of there and yeah. actually being doing these other things. And they have this Zen repetitive motion quality to them that yeah. actually is restorative. Yeah. I'm a lot like that too. I mean, I'm living in a city, so it's a little bit different. I was back in Boston actually last week briefly for a wedding and just driving around the suburbs and seeing green space and all of that was really nice. And I get out, run, hike, do some of the same things. And my thinking, I was always been, if it involves a motor, it's not for me. I do the things that don't involve a motor. Yeah, exactly. Similar to the way that you were thinking about it. Yeah. I know we're running up against time. One last question. If you could go back and tell your 22 year old self, one thing that you've kind of learned the hard way along the way in your career journey, what would it be? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I've tried to actually do it because I have a 21 and a 23-year-old myself. So there's got a unique relevance. You happen to read in between the two of them. So I think part of it is don't worry about the decisions you make in your career so much. It's going to be a long career. Hmm. Number two is don't worry about is it a wrong answer or a right answer because discreetly and binary right or wrong are almost never the case. Most jobs you bring to it. And you're probably not going to make a really wrong answer because you're going to just pick that up in your radar, even in the culture and other stuff. But don't overanalyze and oversweat the right wrong. Because again, all these things are recoverable and kind of move. If you want to do something, 
that looks like it's higher risk. Like if you want to take a period of time and just throw yourself at it and kind of see like build something or try something or do something, do that because you still have every ability to get back on the track you were on before. Exactly. Not a problem at all. It was possible even when you and I were there, even though nobody talked about it, it was still yeah. possible to do that because people came back to McKinsey. They came back to a center. They came back to Novartis. And now I see that pattern a lot. But actually now it's actually even easier than it was before. And in fact, people even like it when you return back to venues and things. Now you may never want to go back, but so this idea that the world's not as risky as you think it is, and all of these things actually are probably important for you to feel that you've been able to do it. And in fact, you'll make other decisions differently. The other part of it is your work life and your home life. Well, as much as people say, well, I'm at home or I'm at work, et cetera. Intense people that do intense things, mm. it halos onto home and home can strengthen what you bring. Understand those dynamics. Yeah. Let them bring benefit to the other. So if I bring my excitement and my energy about what I'm doing home, that extra two hours that I may have at work isn't resented. It's actually mm. like there's a motivational energy that kind of comes out of it. But again, I think this is a difficult thing. We tend to be very compartmentalized there. And humans aren't compelled. We're systems. So anyway, that's probably my last one. Yeah. And somebody I interviewed on this podcast, I don't know, a few months back, talked about not liking the term work-life balance and preferring work-life integration because it does all come together. I mean, it's hard to completely compartmentalize. Well, Jeff, thanks. I appreciate you yeah, doing this. Yeah. It was great to catch up and hear what you've been doing since Stays of McKinsey. And uh yeah. You know, congrats on what you've built. It's amazing. Well, thank you. We're still in the journey. So we're not at the destination yet by any means. But anyway, thanks for your, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here today too. Thank you. Yeah, yeah sure thing. It was great catching up with Jeff today, uh, discussing his career journey, what he's doing and the company he's built in Concert AI and everything going on in the biotech space and how he thinks about leadership and culture and hiring and many other things. Lots of great insights in there. If you're ready to take control of your career, you can visit pathwise.io. And if you'd like more regular career insights, become a Pathwise member. It's free. You can also sign up on the website for our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.